This is a message from one of our Sunday celebrations, and you can find out more about Jubilee by visiting our website at www.jubilee.org.uk. Okay, so this morning, uh, to get uh, back on track, to get me back on track, uh, we've uh, said we're going to uh, split this preach, and uh, I'm going to do half, and Kevin's going to do half. And so you can start your stopwatches now, if you wish. But we thought it'd be good to, uh, on this Father's Day, to look at what that meant, what was uh, going on. Oh, I take it the youth are going out. Okay, off you go. Have fun. Enjoy God together. I want to, in my part of the uh, message this morning, look at what it means for us to have a heavenly father. We have talked about him already. And we often refer to God as father, don't we? You know, that would be a fairly typical way of referring to him. You know, we even start the prayer, don't we, that Jesus taught us uh, to pray as our Father in heaven. There's a relationship between God and us that is like that. And we refer to him as our Father. Now, I'm very aware this morning that for some of you, you have had a great experience of an earthly father. And if you call him to mind, uh, that gives you uh, many uh, positive memories. And uh, he may still be with you or not but that would have been a good experience for you. I'm also well aware that for some of you, you may not have had such a great experience of an earthly father, and that may even still, in these days, be causing you some pain. And it's important that you understand that I'm aware of that, because very often, without realising it, we can project onto God our experience of what it's been like having a father. And where that's good, that's good. And where it hasn't been great, it's not so great. And very often we can project onto our relationship with God what that was like. But rather what we ought to be doing is seeing God as the perfect Father. And rather seeing us, if we're fathers, looking to emulate and to copy him rather than to project onto him maybe some experiences we've had that haven't been so great. And so in these few minutes, as we look at this together, I want to look at how God creates, how he cares, and how he shows compassion. How God the Father creates, cares, and shows compassion. So shall we pray, and then we'll get into this together. Lord, I want to thank you that we can come to you as our Father. We thank you that uh, we have that relationship with you. And as we spend these few moments looking at your word together, I pray you would come and stir our hearts afresh, you would, you would speak to us from your word, and it would come alive to us now. We ask it, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so first of all, let's look at how God creates. So uh, if you're taking notes, that's your first heading, he creates. And God the Father is a creative God. He is a creator God. Now, one of the most exciting things as a father, is 
being involved in creating a family and raising children. And it's a delight to raise them. And, and sometimes it's hard work and sometimes it's trying and uh, sometimes it's not easy. But it is a wonderful privilege and it is a great thing to be part of. But you see, in doing so, we echo God the Father himself because he is a creator God. The very first verse in the Bible is this, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, God is a creative being. And the Bible doesn't quite put it like this, but I would imagine that God had some fun in creating the universe. If you look at some of the creatures that he has created, you can think, that's quite crazy. It's amazing. He probably had some fun in doing it. I remember uh, many years ago hearing Tony Campolo preach, I think at some event like Spring Harvest or something like this, and he talked about how he reckoned God did creation. And he said, how do you think God made daisies? Do you think he just said, daisies, V, and suddenly there were millions and billions of daisies around the world? Or do you think God maybe made a daisy and looked at it and thought, ah, that's good. Now, if, if you, before I finish the story, I should have asked you this. What happens if you get a little child and you know, you're sitting down and you sort of bounce them on your knee for a little bit and then put them down? What's the first thing they say? Again. Do it again. And I can imagine, and Tony Campolo said in the story, so he could imagine God creating something like a daisy, looking at it and go, ah, do it again. And then there were two and, ah, do it again. And whether it really happened or not, like, like quite like that, I don't know. But I do know this. God is a creative creator. And it wasn't that he just went, ah, make a world. Yeah, it looks right. That's, 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 that's fine. I reckon God got excited in creation. And I can imagine him shouting, just like a small child, hey, do it again! And being so pleased at what he had made and what he had created. But you see, it wasn't just daisies that God made. It wasn't even some random animals and creatures and we look at and go, wow, that's incredible. Or look at it sometimes and go, that's just weird. But more than that, not only did God create those things, but he created you. He created men and women for a relationship with himself. That's why. That's why. I wanted friends. God created you for a relationship with himself. And you know what? God loves to create now as well. And what he loves to create now is new life in his people. So he's still about creating. And now that he's created you, he wants to create in you a passion for him. To create in you new life. To create in you all that he has for you to do and to fulfill. You see, loving Jesus, following him is an exciting journey. God wants to create new life in you and more than that, wants to use you in creating new life in other people as well. You get to be in on the act. Not that you do it, but you get to be part of the communication process. 
You get to help explain it to other people. You get to lead them in praying and accepting Jesus as their saviour. You get to be part of the package and helping them discover this creative God. He wants to use you this morning to demonstrate his, the Father's love to others. But as well as God being a creative creator, if I can put it like that, Number two, we have a father in heaven who cares. That's my second point. He cares. Now, you would have noticed this morning, if you're sharp and if you're awake and observant, you would have noticed in the moments that we have been together already since around about 10 o'clock, we have spent some of our time together singing to the Lord. I'm trusting you noticed that. Maybe you were part of it. I'm assuming that many of you even joined in. And when Christians gather, often we do that. Often we would worship. Often we would sing to the Lord. Why? Because it's what we love to do. We're created to worship him. It's natural to us. Now, that's good. I want to encourage that. I like being part of that. One of the things I like about gathering with other believers is the opportunity to corporately worship God together. Do you like that? I'm, I'm hoping that many, many of you do. Now, I love to worship God on my own. I could pick up the guitar or sit down at the piano and play and sing to the Lord and worship. Or, or maybe I'll be out for a walk and I might be praying and singing and worshiping to the Lord until some random dog walker goes past and gets funny looks. So is this bloke singing to himself in the woods? Um, but I love to do that. I love to, love to worship. We're created to worship Him. In fact, the Bible not only encourages us, but commands us to worship God. But, you know, as well as that, the Bible tells us that God the Father sings to us. Do you realise that? Or rather, more accurately, sings over us. So Zephaniah 3, verse 17, says this. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Have you ever thought about that? Not only do we sing to the Lord and worship him, and that's right, and we're commanded to do that. But as well as that, The Bible tells us that God the Father rejoices over you with singing. Think about it for a moment. So the picture is of an earthly father. And those of you who are fathers may be familiar with this when you get your uh, newborn baby and uh, and bring it home from hospital. and, and, uh, And there you are, quite wondering what to do with it, which way to hold it up and all those sort of things. Probably after you put it down in its cots, you might just sing over it and rejoice in this new life that has been given to you. And the picture of a father singing over his son or daughter in that moment is what we're told God does to us. He sings over us, rejoices over us. And you see, so often our concept of God the Father, we think of some rather serious, rather austere, rather standoffish, perhaps rather old, 
remote father. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that he delights in you. The Bible says he rejoices over you with singing. That he cares for you. See, that's the father in heaven that you have. He cares for you. He knows you. He knows you by name. He knows all about you. He knows every hair on your head or where you used to have hair on your head. He cares for you. That's the heavenly father that you have. But as well as having a God who creates, who cares, we also have a heavenly father who shows compassion. We have a heavenly father who shows compassion. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a story. We call them parables. And uh, he tells a, a story about three things which are lost. Maybe you're familiar with it. He tells a story about a lost sheep. A story about a lost coin. And then a story about a lost son. And in the story about a lost son, the youngest son goes to his dad and asks for his inheritance early. Now, you need to realise how serious this is. This is not just asking his dad for a bit of cash to go out for the evening. This is akin to saying to his father, I wish you were dead, I just want your money. It's the height of rudeness. It's the height of insult. Jesus' listeners would have been horrified at this. You just would not have done it. It would have been an awful thing for a son to do to his father, to go to his father and ask for his inheritance early like that. It would have been dreadful. And it wasn't that his son was coming to his father and saying, look, can I get my inheritance early, Dad? There's this business venture I want to try. Or there's a thing I want to invest in. Or, you know, I, I, I need, need a house for, uh, for whatever. It wasn't anything like that. He just wanted to go and party. And in the story that Jesus tells, he goes off, squanders his inheritance in wild living and wastes it. And when he runs out of cash, he realises after a while, in the story that Jesus told, the son realises that even his father's servants had a better deal than he did now. Even his father's servants had somewhere warm and dry to lay their head, food to eat on the table, and uh, knew how it was going to be for them. And so what happens? Well, in the story that Jesus told, we're told that he comes to his senses, and he decides to go back to his father and ask if he can become just a servant, just so that he might have somewhere to rest, to lay his head, and, to, and something to eat. And this is what happens. This is verse 20 from Luke chapter 15. So he got up and went to his father. Now you can imagine Jesus' listeners now thinking, man, what's going to happen to this kid? Boy, is he going to get in trouble. He is going to get in some serious trouble. What happens in Jesus' story? Well, it's, it's this. 
So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quit, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Jesus' listeners would have been horrified at this. The son should have got in so much trouble. He, he's wasted his inheritance. He's been so rude and insulting to his father. What happens? He comes home and his father welcomes him with arms open wide. You see, that day was the day the father had been looking forward to. He'd been waiting for his son to come home. And he's thrilled. And he calls for a robe to be put on him, the best robe. And he calls for a ring to be put on his finger. And the robe, it's a status symbol. He's being treated as a son again. The servants didn't have robes. Sons do. And this son had the best robe. The ring probably would have been a signet ring. It was a sign of authority. And the robe and the ring make it really clear. He's not being treated as a servant. He's not outcast from the family. He's been welcomed home and welcomed back as a son. He's restored, he's forgiven, and he's treated as a son once again. So as I finish, let me ask you the question. Maybe the band can come up as I'm bringing this to a close. Let me ask you, what is your view of God as Father? What is your view of God as your Heavenly Father? What do you think of when we describe God as our Father? When we say our Father in Heaven, or when we talk about Him as that? God is a Father who creates, who cares, who shows compassion. And He is the ultimate loving Father, perfect in every way. And He loves you. He really does. He knows you. He loves you. He's for you. You see, in the parable of the lost son, the son expected his father to be angry. But the good news of the gospel is that God doesn't treat us as we deserve. He offers us the opportunity to be treated as sons and daughters. Jesus calls us friends. And that's grace, you see, getting for free what we don't deserve. So how do you think God views you? Well, I think it was a verse I read earlier during the worship which fitted so well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And this wonderful news is a great offer. Forgiveness and new life in Jesus. So my question to you is this. What is your response this morning to that? Let's stand together. We're going to worship the Lord together. As we do that, we're going to take up our offering for this morning. If you're 
visiting us, please feel very free to let the uh, bucket pass you by. If you're regularly part of us, this is your opportunity to give. I know many of you give already through your bank and via the methods, but there's an opportunity to give now as we worship the Lord. And as we do this, let's give of our hearts to Him as well. And let's be thinking, what's our response this morning to a Heavenly Father who loves us? A Heavenly Father, as we've described, who creates, who cares, and shows compassion. Morning. Uh, if you haven't picked it up, my name is Kevin. Uh, I am married to the extraordinarily beautiful Melanie, and the, that is her full name. So when you see her over coffee afterwards, please don't abbreviate it to Mel. <laughs> Ezekiel calls his wife the delight of my eyes. I love that phrase. And we have uh, three daughters. Uh, Hope is 15. Peace is 14. And Joanna Mercy is 13. And um, that information is normally met with wild-eyed astonishment or horror. Uh, I sometimes get the handshake of sympathy or admiration. I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure which, but uh, I will start by saying this. I absolutely love my kids, and I am immensely proud of them. Ah, uh, thank you, Alf. I tell you, whatever they achieve in the academic world or uh, sport or arts, they have hearts after God, and that's the thing that, that matters most to me. Now, ten years ago, when I used to say to people, you know, have you got any children? Yeah, yeah, I've got three daughters. Okay, how old are they? Three, four, and five. I'd get the, I wouldn't want to be in your house in ten years' time. I hope you're building a shed. And I, and, and I would always say, I am not living with that. I'm not going to live with the expectation that my kids will become difficult or that they will rebel or that teenage years will see the hormones take over and the family fall apart. I'm not living with that because if you start parenting out of the fear that your kids will rebel, you will make some very bad decisions. Here's why. Here's why. Parenting is a faith issue. Okay, God tells us how to parent our children. So if we parent our children the way that God says, our reasonable expectation is that they will grow up knowing him and loving him and walking with him all the days of their life. Now, I'm not naive. We might hit some trouble along the way, and if we do we will cope with it. But my expectation is that that won't happen. And I realise I'm not all the way through it. Okay, I do know that. I do know that 10 years ago when I used to say that kind of thing, parents of teenagers would look at me with a kind of knowing look and a smile and think, it's just not worth telling you, is it? (laughs) But listen to this. In the midst of the law that God gave to his people, in the midst of Deuteronomy, the book of the law, God says this. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, 
talking of them when you are sitting in your house and when you are walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates and the magnets on your fridges and the posters in your bedrooms and the plaques on your walls and the CDs on your stereo and the Blu-ray on your television. Every moment of every day you shall teach your children the way of God. You are responsible for discipling your children. Okay, parents, you cannot delegate that responsibility to creche or frog club or resound or anybody else. Certainly don't delegate it to the school that your children attend. You are responsible for discipling your children. And if you do it the way God says, his blessings will follow. Okay? It's a promise. Teach a child the way he should go, and when he is old, he shall not turn from it. And the most, effe- the most effective way to teach your children is to do what you believe. In fact, you will always do what you believe. So it's actually to do what you say you believe. Okay, my dad used to say that to me. Don't do what I say. No, don't do what I do. Do what I say. That's what he used to say to me. There was a moment a few years ago when I was uh, uh, in my lounge at home. CD was blasting the music away. I'm praising God, top of my voice, singing out, speaking in tongues, eyes closed. I'm there. God, you're fantastic. And I had that moment that you have sometimes and I thought, I'm not the only person in the room anymore, am I? <laughs> and there with the door half open into that. Not sure whether to come in or just to close it quietly and let me get on with it, was one of my daughters. I said, I love Jesus. And she looked at me and she said, I know you do, Daddy. I asked them once, this a few years ago, we were doing some parenting work uh, in a church, and I asked my children, what are the most important things in my life? And without a moment's hesitation, they all said, football. <laughs> so I thought, okay, we'll go for the top five. <laughs> what are the top five? The top five things, according to my children, that are important to me, football, this is obviously not in priority order, football, God, Mel, them, and golf. I think golf might have dropped off the agenda. But I thought to myself, that's not bad, is it? Actually, if that's the top five things that they think are important, that's not bad. So how do we teach them? Okay, you have to live it. There's no point saying that prayer is important if they never hear you pray. And there's no point telling them that this is the inspired word of God for everything that you need in life if they never see you read it. Read the Bible with your children. Read it to them. Explain it to them. And when they come home from school and they've had a tough day, help them apply it. You know, one of our daughters came home one day with a bloody nose. She'd been punched in the face by a boy who was bullying her. We sat, we prayed forgiveness. We prayed blessing on his family. And we went to the school to make sure there were proper boundaries so that couldn't happen again. When they come home and they've had troubles and they've had difficulties, or when things have gone well, we help them understand the Bible. 
we eat together twice a day as a family. Okay, now I'm not saying you have to do this, but you know, if you're going to talk to them about the law of God when you get up in the morning and when you lie down at night, breakfast and the evening meal are great opportunities. Switch the TV off. We've let that slide a bit. I'm not saying I'm a perfect parent. I want to be really clear about that because I missed that right at the beginning. I'm not saying we've got this sussed. We've made loads of mistakes. We still make loads of mistakes. But this stuff helps, okay? That's all I want to pass on. So we've got three teenage girls. You know, they can get up in the morning, sort themselves out, go to school if they want to. They are perfectly capable of that. We make them have a meal with us in the morning. And we pray. We thank God for the food he gives us. We thank God for the family we're part of. We thank God for the day he's created. We thank God for the house he's given us, the jobs he provides, their friends at school, their teachers. We pray. We commit the day in prayer. And when we get together in the evening and we find out what's going on with one another, we pray together before we eat. We pray. For years, I read them stories at the meal table. Probably up until our eldest daughter was about 13. We read the Bible. We read stories by people like uh, Tony Anthony. Um, They've read books by people like Jackie Pullinger, anything by Andrew Wilson. They've read Purpose Driven Life. They've read books on revivals. They've read some fantastic novels that have nothing whatsoever to do with our faith. They're just great books. Read to them. Explain it to them. Okay. Husbands... Love your wives. Okay, you want to be a great dad? Love your wife. Now, I know we're not all in this situation. Okay, I wish I had time. You know, I realise circumstances, life choices, decisions you've made, decisions other people have made, you might not be in this situation, but husbands love your wives. Actually, you don't need a reason for doing that. She's your wife. Love her and cherish her. I remember saying to Mel when she was expecting our first child, you and I are going to be together for a long time after this child has left home. And I have seen couples struggle hugely when the children leave home because they've invested so much energy into children, their own relationship has kind of slipped through their fingers. Don't let that happen, guys. Don't let that happen. You might be a dad, but you're a husband. Love your wife. Keep that relationship going. And there are some benefits. (laughs) There are lots of benefits. I'm not going to talk about all the benefits of loving your wife. But one of them is this. You parent together. Okay? You parent together. Husbands, guys, don't come home from work and be the one who lets all the boundaries that your wife has worked so hard to establish during the day. Don't let them slip. Don't be the one who comes home and lets the kids do everything that your wife hasn't let them do during the day because life is just too difficult if you don't have boundaries. Don't do that. Don't be the one who comes home and does all the enforcement. Mel has never said to the children, wait till your dad gets home. If there's things we don't know how to handle, we say, I'm leaving that in a moment. I'm going to talk to your mum. We'll get back to you. Dads, don't let work become more important to you than your children. They don't really care what promotions you've had or how much you earn. What they really want is your time. Who wrote Purpose Driven Life? Just remind me. Warren. Rick Warren. He says, 
Love is spelt T-I-M-E. That's what they really want. We went out last night for a meal. We went to the Indian. Hope's just finished her GCSEs. We thought, let's celebrate end of exams. Went out for a meal. I sat down and I said, okay, girls, I want some practical tips. What have you really appreciated about my parenting? Why our parenting? What, what have we done that you really like? One of the things they said was, you've been honest with us. Okay, now I don't know if this was just my experience of my parents or if it's a generational thing or what, but my parents would never tell me what was going on. Even as an adult, I've, I've arrived at my parents' house to find that they've been in hospital and had an operation, but despite the fact we talked every week on the phone, they never told me about it. Okay, we share as much as we possibly can with our children. They know what's going on. So, even with things like, three and a half years ago, I had a breakdown. My mental health, just, I just, whatever happened, I just had total meltdown. And we talked to them about it. We've talked to them about when we've gone to hospital. They know what medication I'm on. They know when operations are coming up. We've never hidden the tough side of life from our kids. I was off work for eight months. It was another 12 months before I got back to full-time work. It was a really, really difficult time. We talked to our children about it. We prayed with them about it. We let them know what was happening. I let them see how I was feeling. Guys, don't buy into the lie that being a man or being British means you don't have emotions. That is a lie. You're not defined by your gender or your nationality. You're defined by what God says about you. And if Jesus can weep when his friends die, or when he sees people who need compassion, so can you. How can you teach your children how to trust and rely on God if they're not with you when it's tough? And if they don't see you work through difficult times? Are you trying to teach them that being a Christian makes life a bed of roses and everything works wonderfully well? You're setting them up to fail. Walk through the tough times with your children. Share how you feel, not just what you think. There was an occasion when they were really young. When I'd come home from work and I'd had a bad day, I might even have told this story before, I'd had a bad day, it was a bit of a tough time at work anyway, two of them were kind of playing around, they were very young, they were both in nappies, and uh, one of them just upset me, and I smacked her and sent her to her room. Now, I smacked her and sent her to her room. It was quite an unusual thing for me to do, okay? Both girls burst into tears and ran upstairs, and I'm sitting on the couch, and then one of them, who hadn't been in trouble, Ran back downstairs, stood in front of me. She's about two or three years old. She says, that was wrong, Daddy. You shouldn't have done that. You're just in a grump. And I said, yeah, absolutely right. And I went upstairs and I apologized to the girl I'd smacked. See, if, if you want your children to learn how to say sorry, you have to say sorry when you're wrong. And in our house, we're not allowed to say that's okay. You know, if someone's mistreated you, that is not okay. We say, I forgive you. Because forgiveness is a choice, not a feeling. If someone's done something wrong, you need to forgive them. 
Don't brush it under the carpet and say that's okay. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about, applying scripture to raising your children. Okay, live it, explain it, demonstrate it, and raise them in it. Don't delegate it. Now, we have been really blessed. I will say this, we have been really blessed. All our children gave their lives to Jesus when they were either two or three years old. Okay, our eldest child gave her life to Jesus when I was reading The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, and you get to that passage where Aslan is taken captive alongside the gospel account of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And at three years old, I taught her the principle of substitution. I don't think she quite understood it. But giving your life to Jesus is not a matter of the intellect. It's a work of the spirit. And before they left primary school, they were spirit-filled and going on with God. That's a reasonable expectation if you are parenting as God calls us to parent. Okay, now they have their own relationship with God. And I, I trust that that will go on and continue. But I'll tell you this, parenting hasn't finished yet. It's never too late to start. Okay, I do want to say that to you. It's never too late to start. So in preparing for this morning, I'm kind of going through, oh, we used to do that. We've let that slip. We haven't done that for a while. Now, do I face them out and have the battle of that boundary that we drew once that's kind of disappeared? We're going to draw it again. Yeah, we do, actually. Yeah. We've said to them, look, we've let this slip. We're really sorry, but this is important to us. This is how we're going to do it from now on. And we do it. Have friends round. Okay, this is really important. I'm sorry. I've got so much to say. Have friends round. Okay, introduce your children to other people. Some of you here have been asked by Mel and I to build relationships with our children because we want them to know other adult Christians who we trust who will be a good influence on them. Have people round your house. I read in a parenting, uh, not a Christian thing, but a parenting uh, work once that children have never been so connected with each other and so disconnected from adults in their lives. And that's true. And I don't, what age do children start getting mobile phones out these days? And before I had mobile phones, they were on the internet on little children's chat rooms. Now, some of those are very safe if they're used properly. Some of them are extraordinarily dangerous. Okay, so you need to monitor it. You need to know what's going on. But they will go home and they'll go on the internet at a few years old, seven, eight years old, they'll be on the internet, little penguins wandering around the screen saying things to one another. Some of those sites, they can only say predetermined things, okay? So they're safe from paedophiles. Others, really dangerous. But, you know, kids will be on it. They'll be on MSN. They'll be texting. They'll be doing that stuff. Know what's going on. Get involved with it. But introduce them to other adults. And now we've been really fortunate again. My kids have had the best drug and alcohol education of any children I know. You know why? Because they know loads of alcoholics and drug addicts. And they come around our house and they have meals and they tell their life stories and my children are blessed for knowing them. Okay? So our children have been to life groups, they come to prayer meetings, uh, they've been to family meetings, they come out to ministry with us. They just get involved. They meet loads of other people. Build relationships with other adults. So so important. Send them to New Day. Yeah, come on. Our kids love New Day. I tell you that the benefit of standing with 7,000 of their peers worshipping God is unimaginable. Our, our holidays this year are shaped around the fact that they insist on going to New Day and North 
And we've had to squeeze our family holiday in to make it work. They love it. Send them. If you've got teenagers, send them. Okay. One other, so that's about discipling your children. That's what I wanted to get across. Disciple your children. Okay, the other main thing that I want you to go away from this practical bit about is make memories for your children so that they look back on their childhood and it's full of good stuff. It'll be full of stuff you wish wasn't there as well. In talking to the girls about uh, bringing them up and raising them, they've mentioned some stuff about the way I've parented. I thought, oh my word, I don't want that to be everlasting memory of how you've grown up. But they've got some good stuff too. Last year on holiday, we save for a family holiday. This is something we do. We put money aside every month because it's the only way we could afford to do it. And we make sure we have a family holiday. Last year, we went co-steering in Devon. Now, this is a bit of a strange experience for Mel and I because I'm scared of heights and Mel is scared of the sea. So the idea of jumping on cliffs into the sea, not our idea of fun. Our girls thought it was hilarious. We were in a group of 15. Mel and I had our own instructor all to ourselves, about 150 yards behind everybody else. They will remember that. Two years ago, we took them to Go Ape. Now, Go Ape up in uh, Yorkshire, this was. This would be great, um, but I'm scared of heights. I really didn't want to do it. But the trouble is, one adult can only supervise two children, so I have no choice. I'm standing on this platform, and there is slack in the rope, whatever it's called. What's the proper name? It's just a rope, is it? Okay. There's slack in the rope. There's a hundred foot drop below me in which someone has really helpfully put a grave with a cross as a headstone. (laughs) My two girls have gone across, got to the next platform. They're happy. It's my turn. Jump off this thing, fall through the air until the rope hits you and then suddenly, boom, against a cargo net. Joe looks back. She says, you're right, Dad. I said, I think so. (laughs) Make memories. You don't have to spend money. You don't have to spend money. I take them out one at a time. I give them daddy dates, it's called now. It wasn't called daddy dates when I started doing it, but days out with individuals or I go and take them to see a film that they want to watch. I've seen a few chick flicks in my time. I've seen some vampire stories. I've seen more Pixar than I care to think about. I take them out walking. A couple of weeks' time, I'm taking one of them to the British Superbikes because she likes Superbikes and my midlife crisis seems to be an extra time. Make memories so that they can look back and think, I had a good childhood okay and sometimes it's simple as a hot chocolate with marshmallows in an unusual place all right sometimes it's a day with mel lewis down here (laughs) make memories for them okay disciple your children make memories guys that is a delight to do yeah we're going to spend a little bit of time worshiping our father i've i've more than run out Uh, No, I haven't. I've told you everything I know. Uh, Let's spend some time. We're just going to come back, worship our Father in heaven. I hope that's helpful. So even if you're not a dad yet, but you would one day like to be, just remember those two things. Disciple your children, make memories. Love your wives, please. And 
And mums or mums-to-be, encourage your husbands in it. Okay, sometimes we feel a bit locked out, especially in the early years. Encourage your husband. And parent with faith. All right, our expectation is that the next generation will know and love and worship Jesus, which is what we're going to do. Let's teach them how it's done. Thank you.